It's However just, you're comfortable. It's your show, man. Okay. Right? <laughs> I'm along for the ride. Well, it's weird to call someone that, like, I've known as Mr. Armitage. I was like, oh, I've got to start calling him Dr. Armitage. And then you were like, no, no, it's okay. And I was like, oh, no, I'm older now. I'm allowed to call you something else. <laughs> Oh, hi. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I currently work or used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Jeff Armitage. Much like the other doctors I have interviewed, we are dropping the formality per Jeff's request going forward. So don't come for me, audience. I feel weird about not being formal with him too, but that was his request. Leave me alone. Onto the bio. Originally from St. Albans, Albans, mm-hmm. St. Albans, Vermont, Jeff came to the great state of Ohio for medical school at the Ohio State University, followed up by his residency at the Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton. Then he moved on to private practice in Cincinnati. Per Jeff, he married, quote, and this is the most adorable quote of all time, the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen named Beth and proceeded to have three amazing children. I was actually raised alongside them, having grown up not only in the same town, but also on the same street in the neighborhood, which which is awesome and crazy and wonderful. And this is all full circle and it's fine. I'm having an experience. Jeff's kids went on to choose to the very easy and not at all demanding careers of being engineers, literally all three of them. I can't even spell that word. And Jeff retired in 2018, but up until COVID was using his spare time to volunteer at the aptly named Good Samaritan Free Clinic. Jeff enjoys golf, chess, reading, traveling, and snorkeling in his spare time. He also writes and sings his own music. I better know Jeff from not only eating donuts at his house almost every Sunday growing up, but also because he quite literally saved my mom's life when a piece of steak got stuck in the back of her throat. No exaggeration, that actually happened. So he doesn't even remember his face. He's like, wow, I don't remember that. Literally saved my mom's life, doesn't even remember it. That's how good of a person he is, folks. So Jeff, you have to tell us what what made you want to become a doctor, why private practice? How'd you get here? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's a delight to be here. here and to see you again. You too. I uh, I think received gentle but constant pressure <laughs> all growing up that the greatest profession in the world was to be a doctor. So before I can even remember, that was kind of the urging to do well in school and that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, I think that's kind of how I started. And then when it looked like I might be able to get through the academics, well, then that's the way I went. So Was that pressure from your parents or was that pressure from friends? Who- no, it was my parents. And it, it, when you say pressure, I, they just kind of said that's the greatest job. And who I didn't know anything about jobs. So, I, <laughs> you know, all growing up, I had this attitude, well, that's the greatest job. If I can do it, let's go do it, you know? Okay. So that's what I did. Were you inclined in sciences or what? how yeah. would you, you were? Oh, yeah. I'm much more comfortable with science than reading long books and giving reports. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Okay. What was your favorite subject in high school? <sighs> Other than the cheerleaders? Is that a subject? <laughs> Not a subject, Jeff. Oh, Not a subject. That's why I didn't do so well then. <laughs> Um, you know, it was always math and science all the way up, you know. And that just came easily to you? A lot easier than, yeah, That's than so, language. Yeah. I find that so fascinating because my brain is not wired that way whatsoever. So you, at what age had you decided, well, because being a doctor is the best job, I'm just going to set myself on that track. Was that like middle school, high school? 
I'm sure it was in college when I okay. got through about the first two years and was still doing well. I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go that way. Yeah. And then when you did your residency, what, cause I know a lot of doctors struggle with the choice of, okay, what kind of medicine do I want to practice? What made you choose private practice? Cause there's some liability with that. Well, I mean, I, I think I never had a model to be anything other than a, in private practice. Uh, if you're saying surgery versus psychiatry and that, well, um, you know, a lot of it is shaped by your experiences. I found, uh, you know, when I, I had my early surgical rotations, uh, I found that I was in there standing around waiting to get in the OR suite for excessive periods of time, and I just didn't find that that enjoyable. And then, uh, you know, other, you know, you know, psych never really appealed to me. My, my first uh, clinical rotation was pediatric oncology. Ooh. And I instantly knew that I didn't want to watch kids die oh. in my life. So I backed off of that completely. And then I just got interested in general adult medicine. And uh, so that's how I went. I just want to rewind a little bit. When you say in the OR suite waiting, does that mean speak to me? I mean, literally speak to me like I know nothing because I do. Well, yeah, if you're on, if you're on a surgical team, okay, and you, know, you do your hospital rounds and everything, but then they have a lineup of surgeries to do and obviously there's big gaps in between they run over and all that while you know you don't go home and play pinochle you're there just waiting for the next surgery and particularly if you're in the trauma team you can be waiting late into the night and you know you know it's just i found that you know not fun i didn't find it fun and you know they they're fabulous uh fabulously talented people with their hands and everything but for me, it was still a procedure, you know, and that's not, it just wasn't my interest. Sure. I understand so. that. I can imagine also that would be, there'd be an um, emotional peaks and valleys with the stop start of you think you're starting surgery at two o'clock. So you're mentally preparing for it. And then you have to wait two hours and you're having to stay up. It's sort of like, right. you know, waiting a year to do the Olympics, like yeah. the situation. The athletes But first of all, I didn't have to do anything other than what they told me to do. I mean, I was still in training, so I didn't do any other oh. procedure, but I was there trying to learn it, et cetera, et cetera. So, got it. So I don't give you the idea that I had to perform in the, in the yeah. surgical suite. I never got that far. So. Okay. And then when you were in private practice, did you ever find yourself wishing you had, you know, gone a different route? You know, I... It's impossible not to look at the various medical fields and not be interested in them. You know, I, you know cardiology or, you know, pulmonary or whatever. So they are all fascinating to me, uh, but I never really felt like I, there was just one thing I wanted to do. So that's why a general, and I, was, I did a lot of hospital work for the first probably 20 years of my practice. So just general adult medicine in the hospital, you know, was, was great for me. I loved it. What does that look like when you say you did a lot of hospital work? Would that mean your patients would be admitted and then you'd be on the floor? Or were you also working on the floor? Well, in the, in, when I was getting into practice, you know, you're, you know, you're kind of desperate for work, really. You know, Well, yeah, you're, you're still trying to build your practice. And so the thing is, I was with a group that we would accept everyone's admissions all over town. And, you know, not all over town. I went to a few hospitals. But we would take... Anybody that wanted to admit patients to us, we took them. And uh, we were really successful like Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Everybody would kind of dump their patients on us and then come back the day after Christmas and take them back. So they, you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's common. That was, that was the, 
we were not happy with uh, being on call for the holidays because we really got beat up on the holidays. Okay. But that's, that was our role. That's how we built our practice. Were you able to poach any patients on Christmas and New Year's and they came to you after? Not poach is the wrong word, but... Uh, well, see, we would never do that because then they'll never send us patients again. So uh. you, you, you made it really clear up front that you were Dr. So-and-so's patient and we're here trying to help him take care of this. But you, you don't want to, you know, they, they were still giving us business the rest of the year too, but it was just... Uh, oh, so you can't really say, no, I won't take Christmas, patients on Christmas, but every other day, well, you're never going to get anybody because that's when they really want you. So Sure. So that's how we started up, you know. Okay. And so then did you, for, at what point in your career did you no longer have to accept the Christmas, New Year's patients? Or did that ever happen? Well, yeah. Um, we basically, then I was developing my own practice as an outpatient in the office. Okay. So, uh, you know, after the first probably 10 years, I no longer needed that kind of work. And we backed off and just took our own patients. Yeah. We've had another doctor on or other doctors on yeah. who have expressed the the bureaucracy and business side of medicine they didn't anticipate and didn't know was going to be sort of a part of the process. Did you feel prepared for the business bureaucracy side of medicine? Well, first of all, it was certainly not something I liked. Okay. Um, I, in fact, took an 18-month Xavier MBA medical business course to see if I wanted, you know, get involved in some of the hospital medical staff management, found out very clearly that I had no interest in that at all. <laughs> None. So I had the same dislike for managing a, the private practice. And, uh, you know, it's just not exciting. I wasn't interested in it. And then handling the staff issues was even harder. I mean, I had a great relationship with my nurse, but, you know, I didn't have a great relationship with everybody else's nurse. And I, finding yourself in a supervisor role, uh, in, an incompetent supervisor on people that you don't know, whatever, uh, but that are very important to your partner, it's just uncomfortable. It's not anything I wanted to have anything to do with. But, you know, you just kind of... You have to. You have to just <laughs> do it. That's part of the game. <laughs> yeah. Because it went, so when you go into private practice, it is opening a small business, essentially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We own the business. Yeah. Okay. So you have to not only manage life-saving procedures and medicine and all of the things that go with being a doctor, you also are run. I can't imagine the stress of that. Well, I, that wasn't, I mean, it was the medical part that was the stressful, not the, not the business stuff. Mm. I mean, if I blew that, well, nobody, nobody died. You know? <laughs> Hello. So, yeah. So anyway, and I should say, you know, later we did sell our practice to the hospital. How does, what, what is that? Can you like get into the intricacies of what that looks like? Because a lot of private practice doctors are doing that yeah, now. Yeah, so. well, yeah, the hospital came to us and, and uh, what it was, was uh, we were kind of in between two different hospital systems, competing hospital systems, each wanting more admissions. And we admitted a lot of people. Uh, every year, you know. So we initially went through discussions with one hospital system and just kind of fell down. This didn't work out. Their needs were different. They were really more interested in developing tighter relationships with uh, subspecialty groups than primary care. Uh, this was the phase when primary care was kind of getting uh, phased out of the hospital. 
meaning, uh, you know, when I started practicing, you know, there wasn't, you know, intensive care people necessarily. So we were in the intensive care. We were managing the ventilators. We were doing the swan dances. Well, as uh, specialists came on and were more available, obviously they did it better than us. And, you know, we moved that care in their direction. Well, then they tended to have the, the preponderance of the in-house patients. You know, they were involved more and bigger producers for the hospital. So they wanted to um, have a tighter relationship with, say, cardiology or orthopedic surgery or these, these people. So that was their, their, what they were developing. This is going back now. Sure. So the, our, our, our you know, kind of major hospital didn't really strike an agreement with this. And then another hospital came in and kind of offered us a dream come true contract. So we took it. And uh, we worked with them, oh boy, that might have been eight years or so. Is Just to get into kind of some of the nuance, is, it, is there an advantage for you to have your practice purchased? Does that mean that they then handle the business side of things and you're no longer doing that? Or? Correct. Um, the, the real, you know, the, big, the big advantage, uh, other than obviously having no, none of your own overhead in your practice if you go bankrupt. <laughs> Hello. Uh, obviously. But um, the, uh, the, the big thing is they could step in with some help managing it. Uh, they had, you know, people from the hospital that, you know, were available if we needed them as nurses or phone receptionists. Um, and at the time, there was a lot of contracting work going on. Hospitals were aligning with insurance companies and coming up with products and they needed physicians to you know to be involved in those and so if you were with a bigger group more visible rather than a small private practice you know you get into those groups uh, much easier i didn't understand i didn't know i guess that 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 sort of business nuance existed and that's a difficult that's a juicy carrot as a as a doctor, I would imagine, to think that you could be into the bigger. Well, the the bad part is corporate interests don't necessarily align with the patient's interests. What that feels crazy. I, I know that might be shocking <laughs> to you, and and uh, you know, but in any event, so we're, when you're, you know, I never wanted to be aligned with anyone other than the patient. Period. In any way, mm-hmm. and. Uh, as the the hospital systems became like you know more and more, they had more and more of their own interests that they tried to uh, influence us to pursue, which is kind of a delicate way to put it. But but the problem is, um, you know, their interests, and they also had they also had the problem of managing these physician groups, which you know physicians. Are, often are not, you know, very receptive to that. So that's a kind of a difficult thing. And so they really, you know, a lot of the managers just truly didn't know what we were doing. I mean, and, uh, you know, things went on to, uh, the other thing that kind of happened is we stopped getting cost of living raises and they would just use that raise as bonuses so that, I would get bonus based on my performance, based on what the corporate corporation wanted me to do. Wow. So, I mean, but I mean, that's just a steady growing influence that occurred in the practice. 
And it was, ne it was not, uh, you know, that was not fun. Uh, and uh, they, as time went on, more of this, more and more of this bonus money became your income yeah. and not just a perk. And so they're they're more and more influential in in how the practice is made. And the thing that bothers you is as things went on. For example, I you know take care of a variety of patients, but the people that were managing me said, well. I really don't know how well he takes care of pneumonia, but I can see how many tetanus shots he gives, and I know how many times he orders a cholesterol, so we'll bonus him for that. But, you know, that, that really didn't reflect how good a doctor I was. You know, they just picked some target things that they can manage and said, okay, well, this is what your bonus is going to be, which was not just a bonus because after a while, cost of living raise, it gets to be you know, something significant in your income. So anyway, I know that's No, that's awkward. fascinating. Yeah. But awkward. also, I mean, bonuses are taxed differently than a cost of living raise would be would be taxed. Well, you know, you're you're ahead of me there. I I, uh, I know that's probably that, that's probably true. Which means you're seeing even less of that money and then they get a different write off if it's a, a salary increase as opposed to a bonus. See, I don't know. That's, I don't know that side of it. Yeah. That's so so gross. But and you know, this all this thing happens gradually until it becomes more impressive. And then basically I and everyone in my original group except one guy retired Mostly because of that, because oh, of that influence, a... corporate interests were not really in line with uh, the patient interests all the time. And it was never comfortable when that happened. That's disappointing, too. And you can see, I mean, so I guess you've sort of answered this, but if that, if if you were getting out of, you know, medical school today, do you think, well, do you think you would have even gone into medicine if, if the landscape looked the way that it looks now with that much corporate influence? Would you choose to be a doctor still? It's still a fabulous career. I mean, you, 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 you get to, you know, it's a great field of science, fascinating field of science. And the people are just wonderful. I mean, the people are wonderful. You know, you get some that are not your favorite, but, you know, um, but overall, I mean, that's just a great thing. It isn't the practice of medicine that bugs you. It's the corporate influence being managed, that kind of thing. Well, let's face it, that's the case of everybody's job. I mean, a lot of people have jobs that they like, but it, you know, they don't like their manager or they don't like, uh, you know. Now, I wouldn't run off to another career. I mean, the, the job is fabulous. Medicine is fabulous. It, it, you know, there's influences that you don't like, but name a job is perfect. Uh, sure. So you would so you would say in oh, I 2021, would, I would you would still, you would still, still be a doctor. Absolutely. Okay. And well, we're going to get into that later, actually. <laughs> I'm just going to, in real time, edit myself. Also, just really quick audience. We are, um, because it is still COVID times, we are very lovingly in Jeff's garage, sitting six feet apart. And um, what you are hearing is a refrigerator in the garage. But it's not, it's, you probably are used to it now. And tough because these are COVID times and this is this is real history happening that you were going to all remember so I don't want to hear about the sound quality because that's just the way it is folks not that anyone would because we have the best listeners ever okay so so when you decided to retire and you had said most of the fellows within the same sort of class I guess that no, you... my original group I was in private practice oh okay so with five other oh okay, and then okay. We, or, you know joined the huge group when the when the hospital bought my practice and I'm part of a huge group but those original core guys we faded okay and all sort of walked out at the same time no no we trickled off one at a time but there's one guy still still practicing 
Bless him. Yeah. And okay, so at the Good Samaritan um, Hospital where you were volunteering, what was your what were you doing pre COVID? Oh, I was just doing what I always did. But volunteering. With, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that see, I was I was whining about the corporate influence. Well, there's none there because I didn't do any billing. I didn't have any obligation. Oh, wow. Now I was just practicing doing whatever the heck I wanted. Um, that was really good, and, and I really liked it. And I, I hope to go back there, but I can't visit my grandkids if I go down and you know get exposed to COVID. And then <laughs> so. Sure. For now, I wait till they get my vaccine, and then I'll be back down there. So that's a good transition question. So you will get the vaccine? Oh, absolutely. Don't feel qualms about it. I have no. I absolutely not. I, I think definitely everyone should get vaccinated until everyone does. Till we get herd immunity, our life won't change. I mean, for example, even even if we get the vaccine, okay, and I have the vaccine, mm-hmm. I still have to go wear a mask if I'm going to Kroger's. Why? Because I can still. The, the vaccines work, the ones we have now, yeah. works uh, by uh, inhibiting the virus getting into the cell. Now, the virus is still on the cell. I'll still inhale. And, t- you know, if I come into contact with people, I will get, have the virus. It doesn't infect me. But if I go see you in the grocery store, I can infect you. So until we have herd immunity, we're going to be wearing masks and socially isolating and washing our hands and that's just going to be the way of it and every year we'll get an updated vaccine is this the new normal well i think if well yeah i think it's going to be i think we'll get a vaccine every year uh, i'm hoping we develop enough herd, herd immunity that we don't have to wear masks all the time and and isolate i i truly do uh but i mean unfortunately it's become such a political thing that we have a n- great number of people that are not going to get vaccinated and if we don't achieve herd immunity, I don't know how we can uh, resume our life. If you cavalierly don't mind infecting someone, yeah, you can resume your life. But, I mean, how can you live with that? Yeah. Well, some people can, unfortunately. Um, can you just go, uh, this isn't about that, but I am very curious. Um, herd immunity, can you explain, because that terminology gets used a lot. Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, from a medical perspective, explain what you mean by that? Well, if... And they say somewhere around 70%. If 70% of the population has either had it or had an, a vaccine, then the, the chances of dramatic ex- new exposure are vastly reduced. And that's when you can start kind of resuming a, a normal lifestyle uh, because you, when you go into the stores you have a much less chance of uh, being exposed. So You had explained, because we had talked about this a, a couple months ago, you had explained that the you were in practice, and please correct me if I'm misremembering this incorrectly, uh, you were in practice when SARS kind of became uh, an issue, and you had mentioned that there were there are some similarities, but that this this the explosion of this it has been sort of interesting and different. What what is the? Am I remembering that incorrectly? Do you well, um, I of course never saw a case of SARS, but you heard about it in Asia, and uh, it is a coronavirus, just as COVID nineteen is a coronavirus. Um, the difference being. You know, SARS was very deadly to the people it ran into, but it didn't have the contagious risk that this virus does. I don't know the specifics, but I, I would su- suspect that a higher number of people that got SARS died from it than 
die from COVID-19. But you have such an unbelievable number of people that are getting infected that we have almost 2 million dead worldwide, which is astonishing. Is it, it's, it's very sad, and I don't have a different synonym for that because it just is but when you say that the contagious i don't know the contagion path i don't know how the medical terms i'm just making things up but for how contagious sars was or is versus covid19 do you think that that is why covid19 became a global pandemic or do you think it's also mismanagement of how to control the virus itself, not just here, but globally? Or do you think it's both? Or do you think it's strictly just for how contagious it is? So, you know, you have multiple aspects of a virus, okay? Uh, a, what type of inoculum you need to actually get infected, how you would get this inoculum, whether it's eating, breathing, whatever, injections, intercourse, whatever, yeah. okay? So it, it, it's a matter of how the virus is going to infect you and what amount of inoculum or how many different viral particles have to be there. I mean, if you get one COVID-19, you might be able to fight that off and not have a problem unless you have a, some kind of serious immune problem. So you have that. Number two, if you have a virus that's really contagious but doesn't kill you, you know, it's kind of a lot of times indistinctual from, quote, the common cold, right? So it doesn't. It doesn't scare us either. But when you get that combination of a deadly virus and a virus that's really contagious, then you have the makings for a pandemic. And like, for example, there are that that's basically it. And and those two things will can occur uh, from mutations. If you take influenza that we have every year, everybody knows about it, and you know they yawn about it. Still, fifty thousand people a year die from it, right? Well, if you get that influenza and it suddenly mutates, so it's a lot more deadly. And let's say our vaccine misses, you know, because they guess on the vaccine, right? I mean, it's just a guess. They're trying to figure out how to create it every year. So if you get if they miss on the vaccine and it turns really deadly, you can have another pandemic from influenza next, wow. yeah, even later this year. I mean, it could happen. No, it hasn't. I, don't, I haven't seen anything. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it, yeah, that's what's going on. And the other thing about COVID is that there's such a huge amount of virus out there. You know, we got vast number of people with COVID, and that mutation continues, and it's like a you know, occurs every so often, maybe 15 days or so. So if you have three cases in the world that mutate with, you know, two million viruses, well, you're not going to see that. But if you have a vast reservoir of virus that are also mutating, then these viruses can change rather quickly. I mean, in a, an alarming way. Obviously, there's huge de- areas of non-life-threatening components to that genetic material. So, I mean, it, it has to be the, the spot-on mutation that churns, that would make COVID more deadly. I think that the more recent viral mutations we're seeing are more contagious, but not more deadly on a case-by-case basis, so that we're seeing more deaths because there's way more cases, but it's because it's way more. There's not a higher percentage that are dying. It's just that there's so many more people getting infected with it. So is influenza a type of coronavirus? 
No, it's a, it's a different virus. Totally I mean, I different. was just using that because we're all comfortable with influenza, but still a lot of people die from influenza sure. every year. And we need, I mean, well, you can get a vaccine against that strain or the guess, guesstimated version of that strain. Yeah, they try to anticipate you know, what's going to be there to try to protect us. Yeah. Something that has come up a lot is the, the speed with which this vaccine against COVID-19 was developed is making a lot of people nervous to take it. So what would you, could you speak to that? I'm not a super special on this. All I can tell you is what I've read, okay? And I'm, I'm, I have no insight to the drug companies. But just as an overview, when you get some of these other uh, vaccines, you know, they grow the virus in this amalgam of gunk, okay? Mm-hmm. They grow that virus. They try to break it all down and, you know, chop it all up and, you know, inject it in you so that you have exposure to it. And then you can, your immune system can react to it. But that's not a very pure vaccine, okay? I mean, you just got a bunch of junk. Egg, you know, they grow it on an egg uh, medium. So if you're allergic to eggs, well, you got a problem. Well, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's not, not a pure thing. But it's, it's my understanding that this is just a remarkable technological advance in vaccine in that they, they sequenced the genome of this, of this virus, found how they could block it penetrating the cell created this in a non-active format so it you know you'll react to it whatever and then by a lot of chain reactions made incredible amounts of it but it's all very pure it's not all chopped up it's not all this other stuff that you get in all these other vaccines. Sure. This is a really pure vaccine. I mean, in terms of what's active in you. So from that standpoint, I think the vaccine is, uh, number one, it's a technological advance from what I've, I've read. And again, sure. I don't know mo- anything more than what you read. And, sure. And, but, but the internet has to be truthful. Right? Everything, everything. Everything on it. Yep, perfect. every page. Yeah, I'm sure I know exactly <laughs> what's going on. Anyway, um, so I think it's a technological advance. Number two, this death toll that we have here. We have sacrificed 375,000 people in America. If we don't do something, that's not going away. Okay, what we've had only, I don't know what percentage of the population, we're nowhere near a herd immunity that's going to slow this thing down. So when you say, oh, well, I'm not going to get it. Well, I mean, that death, you know, okay, then that's what you're going to accept from now on every year you know, 350,000 people are going to die from this. That's kind of a quite a decision to make. Now, are there side effects? Yeah, I have read some side effects. I have some tough allergy problems that can occur to it. And I'm sure we don't even know all of them because they, they had to roll this thing out so fast. But I just don't think it's, and I truly would like to resume my life, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll definitely do it. And I think everyone should get it. And if you don't get it, you you kind of are typhoid Mary here. Yeah. You know, I think you're, you, you are a danger to everyone you see. And assumingly, you have to assume you're seeing your family and people that you love a lot, and you are putting them at great risk. So that's a, a decision I would feel very uncomfortable with people making, you know? Yeah, what, uh, what Jeff's not saying is you're a selfish asshole. I'll say it. He didn't say it. I'm saying it. Get the damn vaccine. <laughs> but whatever. I have no strong opinions about this. Just one more corona question, then we yeah. can get, stop talking about it. You were explaining in a way that was totally understandable the, and I'm going to mess up the words, the 
it's like aerosol, but there's a medical, it's like, it's saying that's how it's passed. It's through the aerostal. I forget the word. Cause you would explain like singing. I don't know what word you use, but I found it so fascinating. Well, there's the macroscopic globules and the microscopic globules. Is that in the aerosol? Aerosol. Yeah. What's the word when it's made into aerosol? Aerostal is, is there somewhere? Maybe I made that. I made it. You're making face. I, I made I, that I up. Know. I mean, you no, know. I've made it up. Yeah. I've made it up. That's okay. It's all right. I, I do that a lot. That's um, why we watch the show, because you make this <laughs> stuff up. <laughs> well, so could you explain to people why oddly singing and work it? Because shockingly in Ohio, gyms are fully open. And I see we drive past them all the time. And I'm like, nope, no masks, no masks anywhere. And can you explain why the particular activities of working out and singing uh, just create such an unnecessary spread and risk? Well, um, you know, you, when you, if you have COVID and you expire or cough or sing, then you're going to project this in, the, in an aerosol manner. And then you can, there's two major, uh, I don't know if it's actually distinct lines, but there's a macroscopic globule and a very microscopic globule. The, air, the viral content of the macroscopic globule is very high and very contagious. The microscopic globule, it's still in doubt, okay? So, but the thing is, if I sit here and I have it, and I just project microscopic, you know, globules all day long, but I sit here in this one spot, well, suddenly now the desktop has enough virus to infect someone, okay? so. Uh, the, the you know we we talk about a six foot radius, and that's the macroscopic globules. Okay, that's where you would anticipate they go. The microscopic globules will go much farther than that, but at least what I was reading, and, and it's it's I don't know whether it's true or not, but they didn't they weren't confident that the microscopic globules would infect you. So that's why the guideline is about six feet rather than twenty three feet that you may project your microscopic globules. Oh, wow. So I don't know if that is what you were asking or not. Well, it's, yeah, it's very helpful. And so is it a risk to go to the gym right now? Well, I mean, if you go and, well, if you go, wear a mask, wipe everything down that you touch, okay? But you have to understand, the last guy was just breathing hard all over the weights or treadmill or whatever. Or just so, in that area. Yeah. So if you, yeah, and assuming, yeah, I mean, it can stay aerosolized too um, anyway. But but so you, if you assume that cleaning role to protect yourself, you may be able to keep yourself safe. But I don't know that the gym is doing that for you. I mean, I would not trust the, I mean, everything you touch, you should clean that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, I, I, I would rather just get fat than go to the gym. <laughs> go to the gym and die. <laughs> you'll die right. hot, I, but heck, you'll be yeah, dead. Man, I, <laughs> and do you think kids should be back in school and then we can get away from this topic? Well, um, so here's, you know, that's a, that's a really difficult thing. I mean, the obvious thing is, quote, oh, yeah, kids, they don't get it. They don't die. Okay, well, you know, there are a few of them that die. Okay, uh, so then are you going to say, okay, well, okay, let's just go uneducated. Let's see how our quality of life looks doing that. That's not good either. Now, then the idea of Zoom or video remote education, uh, everybody says, oh, it's, it's terrible. Well, you know, 
we didn't really try very hard. You know, I, I can't help but feel that a lot of things can be taught that way. Uh, and if we can generate a safe teaching environment for the smaller number of topics that really require you to be there, mm-hmm. like, for example, a classroom of 30 kids. I mean, who's kidding who? You, 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 that's not That's not. That's not safe. That's not working right. either, yeah. Now, a, a classroom of six kids done several times a day, you know, using that same space that cleaned afterwards, you know, maybe that's possible. And so if you could do the majority of these classes, you know, virtually or, you know, remotely, mm-hmm. and then only bringing them in for the topics that really can't be done very well, I mean, that's what I, I was hoping to see happen. And, uh, you know, that kind of transitions into a whole other issue. We are now, you know, creating such huge debt for college kids. And we are destroying them. Yeah. Now, if you look in the future and you say, okay, how can we improve the quality of life for my grandkid or maybe great-grandkid? Well, one of the top things you can do in a global economy is get educated. So it's not like it's a minor thing. This is a major thing that our military and everything else is going to be dependent upon. So we've got to figure it out. So right now we've got college kids go to school and come home with $100,000 worth of debt, and that, that just can't happen. We've got to start educating people, you know, two or three times as many people at one-half to one-third the cost if, if we are going to in, get enough people educated to compete True, yeah. with China and India um, so uh, I think these, these, this is something, and this COVID experience is given us a huge time to take a look at teaching people remotely because I don't think you need to pay $80,000 a year to go to Harvard for one year if a lot of it can be done. I mean, how difficult would it be to teach intro calc and intro, intro biology, all these intro courses? Nothing changes. I mean... You know, they keep changing the textbooks and charging you for a new textbook. That's, that's crazy. But now maybe the second and third year when you're really getting into more specialty work in your career, maybe then you got to go there. Maybe you got to do But, you know, if you could get two years done remotely at home, you could save people an awful lot of money. So anyway, I, I kind of went off the deep end, but no, that's, but that's why you asked me here. You yeah. knew <laughs> I did, that I that's knew. what I was going to do. <laughs> that was the goal. It's very interesting. <laughs> You're answering all these questions. And, and all of these things are inextricably linked because we could say that part of why people are having their own theories about, you know, the treatment of COVID, even though they're not medical professionals, is due to a lack of education. I mean, we really could. And that's not to say that if you have a college degree, that's a guarantee. And it's not to say that, you know, some people that with four-year degrees don't also believe that it's whatever, but it is an interesting sort of inextricably linked idea that we, as soon as education became third priority in the country, things shifted. Mm. Well, the bad part is what you're bringing up. And again, I'm, I'm in left field here again, is that I know that a lot of the impetus to treat, to teach people that COVID's no big deal that if you don't take care of yourself, it's just going to go away. And, and if you, uh, do isolate, well, then you don't support you-know-who, mm-hmm. are done by people that are extremely well-educated, mm-hmm. that know darn well these people are going to get sick and die, okay? Yes. So my 
real rejection of this whole thing mm-hmm. is they have sacrificed these people. Yes. I mean, they're not stupid. They know it's there, but they say, you go on out there and you get exposed and, you know, some of you are going to die, but that's okay. That's okay because we need to maintain power. It's murder. That I have difficulty with. I mean, I, I see no justification and that one's tough. I, I uh, you know, it, it, you know, it does launch into the other religious thing because sure. a lot of religions feel God's going to protect you, and so you don't need to protect. But, but you don't get to choose how God protects you. Come on, come on, Jeff. No, That's I'm right. Just, That's right. I mean, That's right. What if the way God's protecting you is, is the to, vaccine and teach and the scientists teaching you to isolate uh-huh. and not gather and blah? Maybe that's the way He's trying to protect you. Well. So that's a difficult thing, too, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that they have to, they could do their uh, sermons remote, remotely. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just don't think you have to do these things. I think people are dying because of it. I just don't, I can't justify it. And shout out to the churches that are that are doing that. And there are some pastors and some priests and some there are some people in the religious world that are very aware of it. But I agree with your statement. And I have heard that, that if I get it, I get it. And that is um, from people I love. And that is a sad thing to try and not discuss because yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this comedy podcast is crushing it. I hope everyone's laughing and having the best time. (laughs) I'm sorry I brought up COVID, but I had to ask Jeff because we had a fascinating conversation a couple months ago and I, I instantly was like, I'm getting him on the podcast. I'm asking him everything. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're going to go on to the entrees after a quick break. We are back. And now it is time for the entrees. Um, now, I consider being a doctor customer service, but there are also other jobs I assume you've had in your lifetime. So we're going to go through that list right now. What was your first job ever where the government like took taxes out of your... I was stuffing paper. It was uh, I was putting ads in the newspaper in the wee hours of the morning. Oh, what did that look like? Uh, well, it was... Uh, I don't know. We would go... We would gather in some garage someplace at you know midnight and just start cramming the stuff in the paper and passing it on see i instantly think that's how you get murdered i would that would be a scary job for me yeah that wasn't uh that wasn't that enjoyable no okay um how many customer service shops have you had and we obviously know being a doctor is one i wouldn't count the the stuffing because you didn't you didn't interact with customers right when you were stuffing the ads in the newspaper no. um were there other jobs that you've had where you're in i was a waiter a wait- oh you were waited tables. yeah a restaurant called the Governor Smith Inn. This is when I was in high school in Vermont. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I was uh, perhaps not the world's best waiter. Wait, why? I I don't know. I you know it's, it's just uh, you would go into it with the enthusiasm and drive that you took there, <laughs> and it was never my life's long ambition to be a waiter. Not not that I have anything wrong with people waiting. That, that's uh, they're great people and it's a great job. But it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. So I went in with that kind of attitude. Okay. So. Okay. So you were a bit uh, dis- disconnected or detached, would you yeah. say? Yeah. Okay. So, so I, people probably bothered you. <laughs> Oh, uh, you know, it wasn't so much that they bothered me, but it's just, uh, you, you just know, didn't I care? think it, it takes a lot of attention and interpersonal reaction. You know, you've got to break the ice with people, you know, you serve them, you've got to pay attention to them. And if you have a bad attitude, uh, <laughs> I think that will reflect on your 
<laughs> your performance yeah. with them. Okay. And I, it wasn't that I hated it at all. I just, you know. Okay. It was, Did you work in college at all or was it just you were a server at the Governor's Inn in high school and that was your only job in high school and then? Well, in the, in the summers I worked, but I didn't try to work and go to class. So what did you do? How, so we've got the Governor's Inn, doctor. What other customer service jobs have you had? Well, it wasn't customer service. I mean, I worked at a, in a factory slinging pipe. Ooh, uh, rough. No, that's and, not customer service. Uh, but I uh, used the window washers, the four-story window washers. Yeah. So that's not really customer service. Would you go up in the lift? No, no. I had a pole. Oh, okay. And, but still, you know, the four-story column of water kind of weighs on you after oh oh does it oh Oh, that's heavy oh weird okay um was that a weird job uh well it was kind of strange they the windows didn't look that much better to me before (laughs) and after (laughs) so you just you could lie and be like no 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 i definitely did that window what are you talking about look at that it looks great yeah (laughs) okay so basically two customer service jobs is what we're where we're landing yes so that's sad but true that's what's sad you were a doc i mean your entire professional career over you know a couple decades was customer service so multitudes of them isn't necessarily a good thing i've had way too many which was your favorite job of all the jobs you've had being a physician okay sure yeah Least favorite? Well, I guess there was only one other job, right? Well, you can pick from any of the... Oh, I mean, any of the jobs? Yeah. Oh, the least favorite for me was slinging pipe in the <laughs> west Ooh. side of Cleveland. That was rough. Yeah. When you say slinging pipe, what do you mean? Well, I there was a machine, and uh, it was a, a pipe, and you put it in this machine. It was a 24-foot pipe. You put it in the machine, and it would taper male and female ends, and you take it off and walk and dump it on a tray and oh. go get the next one. God bless the people that do repetitive factory work. Wow. I know it's not customer service, but the 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 mental taxation of how mundane that is is I mean, God bless them. It's the same thing people that work in fast food restaurants and are frying fries and flipping burgers all day. Like there is that mental piece that we rarely discuss of having to keep yourself engaged. Over and over again. Oh, yeah. God yeah. bless. Uh, and then you didn't. You didn't have podcasts to listen to like this one in your ear when you were slinging pipe. So I don't that's. Know how I, I don't know how it. you made it. I don't know it. how I made yeah. it. Yeah. I don't know how anyone made it before yeah. this particular podcast. Okay. Uh, what's the weirdest thing you've been asked to do whilst on the clock? And as a doctor, feel free. We've gotten some really insane answers on this, so don't feel like you have to censor yourself. In fact, the audience weirdest. prefers you don't. <laughs> the weirdest thing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that one's a tough one. I. I mean, everything I do is so weird. How can you, you know? Can you give us a couple examples uh, of weird no, things? No, I can't. Um, well, I mean, I'll, I will. Nah, I, I guess I don't feel comfortable telling that story just because of a patient interaction thing. So I, okay. I, I will skip that one. Um, is there a way to anonymously present that story? Or do you think that patient no, might figure I out? I think they'll... the person would know. It's such a bizarre story. Okay. That the person they would know. Would know and, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I that, mean, that's the hard thing. You don't ever want anyone to feel that they are <laughs> unusual, if you will say. So oh, no, you're anyway. much kinder than most yeah, guests. Yeah. Most guests want to yeah. go in on this. I could no. tell the story of you saving my mom's life, which was pretty weird. Yeah, I gotta admit, I don't remember. That. That's okay. No, um, we were having. I think it was just flank steak at dinner, and we were all eating, and my mom got really quiet, and she wasn't necessarily fully choking, but her airway was definitely blocked. And she had a piece of flank steak that was stuck Mm. in her throat. So the Heimlich wasn't an option because her airway wasn't fully blocked. 
And the first thought was, we have to call Dr. Armitage. We have to call him. We have to call him. And so I think my dad or um, certainly my mom didn't call you. I, I, I was, I remember being old enough that I could have, you know, functionally dialed a phone. I wasn't like three, but we called and you came right over and you had a flashlight and I think hemostats and maybe something else. And you took a look and her airway was like partially blocked. And so you went in and pulled out the piece of steak that would have, eventually choked her Hmm. and then you were just like all right everybody have a great night and went about your business and just didn't make it a big deal and we were all like oh my gosh like you know of course so grateful and obviously still remember that story and that just speaks volumes to who you are that you're like oh i saved another life okay cool i don't remember (laughs) i mean it does it's very humble it's very very kind (laughs) it's i still don't remember that that's uh, this dementia must be settling in faster than i think yeah (laughs) yeah it's uh it it definitely i mean i mean maybe i it was a a, a dream but i definitely have vivid <laughs> memories of you being in our house and saving my mom's life. i don't know hmm. my sister will have to verify that my mom could probably verify this um i thought that so that, that i mean i feel like did did the, did you get called on a lot from non-patients to handle weird situations like that's a weird thing well no i i got called on quite a lot to help out where i could i was very happy to do that friends and neighbors and yeah so that's never a problem. I wasn't, that wasn't really work at all. You know, that's, that's, you're very kind. All right. So, so folks, he's not going to give it up. He's not going to expose anyone. He's too nice. I'm pounding on my chest. They just uh can't see. uh Yeah. He's too nice. All right. We'll skip that question. What is in, well, okay. So this one, I'm going to change the question a little bit because the question is actually what incident made the mass to speak with the manager, but did you ever have patients? Cause I know for doctors, reviews are such a big deal and I would imagine as the corporate influence increased you had to answer for patients opinions probably more so was there ever a patient that complained about you or wrote a review about you that was negative and then you were spoken to about it well you know there's always you're always running late and obviously yeah people would be not happy with me for running late and I yeah and the corporation would, you know, reflect that because they, they they do keep track of that if you're late. So yeah, I I had my share of uh, of that, uh, sure. And you and then some people don't get what they want. You know, I was not a big uh, pain pill, sleeping pill person. So if they came in looking for that, they weren't happy with me when I when I didn't give it to them. So I heard some of that too. So. Were you able to suss out the people that were potentially pill pill shopping, as they call it? Well, you know, every new doctor that goes into practice, the first three months, they see a bunch of drug-seeking patients. Ugh. Well, that's just part of the game. Uh, is that because they're, they be, that patient would be new to them, so they don't necessarily know that this person is pill-shopping? Yeah, they, they don't know. You don't know the patient. They don't know you. They want to know if you're going to give them their Percocet or their sleeper or whatever they want. And so... Any t- every every doctor faces that uh, certainly primary care. I don't know about some specialties, but everybody's dealing with that all the time. Uh, a lot of drug seeking behavior, and you have to learn how to do that. I mean, uh, you you decide you you decide based on w- your performance whether you're going to be that person that grows your practice by uh, appealing way. to them yeah. or. If you're going to say, no, nah, I'm going to let you guys go. I'll try to build something else. So you d- did any of those people ever complain about you? Well, you know, that was earlier in my practice. Uh, but you still had drug-seeking people all the time. But, you know, I, 
I didn't even pay attention to that stuff. I mean, if they complain because you didn't give them Percocet, I mean, there's no hot, no manager in the world is going to say that's a problem. You sure. Know? So that really wasn't. The problem is, uh, it sounds yeah trivial, but they're really good at it. Yeah. I mean, they are really present uh, that they're really suffering, and it often takes... Uh, looking at their past medical history to find out if they truly have a back problem or if they truly, uh, it's it, that's the hardest part of it. I mean, it's not like you can say, oh, you want this? No, nah, no, don't give it, consider it. Because there are there are times when I did use it. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. there are people that need it that you know have lung cancer or whatever and have terrible terrible pain. So was it literally just looking at their medical history that was able to help you decipher if they were pill seeking or? Well. I mean, some people, you, you developed a trust for what they, you know, and you, you trusted them, and other people, you didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's hard to describe how, how to do that. I mean, you, it's a feel. And the people that you, you know, developed a trust for, you go, you get their record, and you look and see, trying to find a way to take care of them. And if, if it is pain pills or sleepers or whatever you need, well, then that's what you do. If If there's... A case where you're not comfortable with it, and you look at the record, and you really just can't find a concrete reason to be using it, then you try to wean them off it. And what is that conversation like? Well, it's never very comfortable because they want something that you're not able to provide. So, I mean, they don't want to be weaned off, or that would be what they came in and asked you for. Help, help me wean off. They want the drug. They don't want to be weaned off. So, no, that's that's never fun. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of conversations that aren't fun in medicine. I would imagine. And do they prepare you for that in school? Or you just get good at them by practice? Uh, how, how, you know, how do you prepare someone to, to tell them that they have cancer? I mean, Oof. how do you do that? I mean, you can, you can act like you can, but until you go in there and try to do it, and it's, not, um, it's not that easy. Yeah. I can't imagine. Okay, what's so well, you sort of already answered this, but the last straw that got you out of the job. So you, well, I guess we'll, we'll ask it in the in the waiter job. What was the last straw that made you quit that job? I graduated from high school and went on to college. That was it. Just <laughs> that timing. Was it, yeah. Okay. Well, you seem just so unhinged. So I'm surprised you didn't just flip a table and light the building on fire because you're, you know, you have such a well, volatile I, personality. I probably did. No, I believe you. Probably, yeah. I believe it. You're so, yeah, yeah, you're unwell. Have you ever told, uh, uh, like fired a patient and said, I, you can no longer be a part of my practice? Oh yeah. What, what, what makes that happen? Well, um, first of all, when the relationship breaks down, you want to like, for example, I've had a patient that came in and uh, came in with his wife with dementia, and he would not stop driving his car. Okay. So I, I tried to talk to them as best as I could and try, made it clear. The wife was totally on board. Oh, she, she was? Oh, yeah, she oh, did wow. But he was, you know, a big uh, macho guy, and, and he was in control. But the problem was, you know, I... In that setting, I had to call the sheriff. Oh, wow. To say, look, um, this guy, he's obviously not fit to drive a car. Please come to my office and follow him home and deal with this. Well, obviously, that's not uh, the kind of patient that you're going to hang on to. So, yeah. I, <laughs> I, you okay. know, so, but, you know, you, you run into stuff like that. And obviously, uh, a lot of the patients that, you know, if, they, if they're if they not taking the drug the way you want them to, 
if I, you know, if they come in and you're convinced that they have a bad back and I give them some pain pills uh, to last for, uh, you know, 10 days and it, they're, it's gone in two days, that's a problem. Uh, patients that uh, then forge your signature on further drugs. Did that happen to you? Oh, yeah. Well, that happens. Yeah. M- meaning they stole like a, 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 a prescription pad and go to Ooh. the pharmacy. And the pharmacists are very good at this kind of stuff. That's their. But yeah, you get a call from the pharmacist saying, uh, did you do this? Nope. Well, obviously, that kind of patient. I mean, so. isn't that a federal offense? Oh, yeah. It's against the law. It's against the law. So then is there... Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, the minute... I mean, the pharmacists pick it up and call the police and... They do. Oh, yeah. And so then the police show up in real time. Well, not to my office, but... To the pharmacy. They investigate it. They investigate it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But I mean, that's that's a patient you can't continue to see. So then would those patients ever call you and have the gall to try and get another appointment and then your receptionist is left saying, you can't have an appointment? Oh, Oh, God bless your poor receptionist. How awkward. God bless any receptionist that has to have that conversation. Yeah, that's, that's... But I mean, for example, I still have to provide emergency care for a month. You do. Oh yeah. If you if you uh, fire a patient, you got to give them the opportunity to get health care. You can't just abandon them. So, yeah. So you you could fire someone and they come back and need need some help in that intermediate period of time. Has that happened to you too? Oh yeah. And so then you will treat them. But what oh, about yeah, the liability? Yeah. Well, I spent my career liable for any wow. mistake I make. You know. So sure. you. Obviously, the things that you do, you try to document carefully and make sure that, you know, what you're doing is standard of care. And uh, so, yeah. I can't imagine. So then after that 30 days, would you then say... Well, then you know, then then there's no, they're not my patient anymore. I have to notify them in writing. You do? Okay. Okay. And then you have 30 days where, you know, uh, they, they, like, you know, for example... If there was a diabetic on insulin oh, that sure. I fired and they ran out of insulin two days later, I can't say tough, tough. Yeah. You know, I got to take care of them uh, until sure. they can reasonably get other health care. Sure. So, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Is that is that part of the Hippocratic Oath or is that an actual like documented legal obligation? Uh, I th- you know, I don't, it's not part of the Hipp- Hippocratic Oath. It is oath. not. Okay. Um, but uh, it's, I mean, the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I literally never knew what it was. Yeah. I just knew that was a thing. So, but, but I'm just saying uh, um, that that I'm sure came about because someone fired them and someone didn't get care and had an adverse reaction and there okay. was some lawsuit that happened and, you know, we learned from that and don't, don't pursue that. <laughs> we don't want to sure. do that. Were you sued ever as a doctor? I, I never. I had a case where a patient uh, sued me for dismissing her from my practice. And so I was sued, but I, they didn't win it or anything. No, of but, course, because you had documented why you had dismissed yeah, her. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, this one's a fun one to ask you. How many bodily fluids have been on you whilst you've been working? I don't know. That's uh, I, I'm sure I'm probably reaching the record, the world record. Is that pretty much <laughs> out of them all? Out of I, all? At some point, I, I think. Okay, so this is the question that comes up a lot because this is just yeah. my, this has happened to me and I interview so many people this hasn't happened to. Has anyone thrown up on you? Besides your kids, kids obviously don't count because kids puke everywhere. But have you had a patient throw up on you? Other than my prom date? <laughs> 
That's not a patient, <laughs> oh, Jeff. Okay. Uh, no. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I've been thrown up on a few times. Does that make you sick, or do you not? I, I don't seek it out. <laughs> You don't have a vomit fetish? That's no. not your thing? Well, oh, okay. you know, it's, it's, not, it's not fun, but, uh, you know, it's... Have you ever gotten sick at the job from seeing something or like the very, at the beginning of you working as a doctor? Well, yeah. I, I used to moonlight uh, in the ER Oof. and uh, I saw a 28-year-old girl with a gunshot wound to the face. I mean, you, you go through that. First of all, I was in the ER working other cases, but I mean, all hands were called to sure. try to help out. So sure. it's, and that was just ghastly. I mean, uh, you can't, you couldn't get an airway in, you know, so you, it was uh, a military couple and they both came home from overseas and PTSD. apparently she uh, wanted to end the relationship and he didn't. So he, he shot her. He, oh. Did she pass? She did not. She survived. She survived. Which but, is almost worse. But he came back and tried to kill her in the hospital, <gasps> and he was arrested, yeah. How did he try to kill her in the hospital? Well, I wasn't there, but the uh, the report was he came in with a gun, and security <sighs> stopped him. And... Oh, bless her heart. Bless so, her heart. So, so did that, but in that, when you saw that, you threw up? Oh, no, I didn't throw up. But it cured me of moonlining in the ER. I'll oh, you were you done that. after that? Oh, I was done. I walked off and never went back to an ER setting. Because that trauma, was just, trauma, ER setting. It's just too much. Well, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a lily-livered guy, and that, that yeah. was just too tough. No, that was too tough stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so was there ever anything that you saw that grossed you out so much you threw up? No. Uh-uh. Okay. Have you ever fainted from something you've seen? Mm-mm. You're not really a lily-livered guy, to use your phrase. I mean, oh, well, I would have... Okay, if that's the, is that how you measure it? Okay. Yeah, that's the standard. <laughs> no, no, I haven't vomited or, th- or ba- passed out, no. Really? Okay. And what are you able to say the grossest thing? I mean, that's, that's pretty... A, a facial gunshot wound is pretty intense, but something oh, that's yeah. a little more lighthearted that's, that you saw that made you like, oh, gosh, I don't want to do this. Well, uh... Like a big zit or something that someone needed help with? I mean, th- there's plenty of bad abscesses and stuff like that I mean, they, you know that's just part of the job you know you normalize things that are not normal just so you know for regular folks these things are not normal yeah but i mean if you did this job it would be you know it's just what you do that's part of it i mean does that ever do you think that that like if your child they say this is the kids of of physicians or nurses or anybody that works in medical medicine of any kind the children end up having to suck it up a little bit more because it's like, is you know, is the bone protruding out of your skin? If not, tough. Deal with it. Did you find you were a bit harder, uh, or not harder, but a bit more well, calloused to when people would come to you with injuries in your own family? Well, it could be. I'll tell you the story of my Michelle, my yeah. daughter, who when she was about three, maybe four, and she was, we had this little playhouse in our dining room and it had a swinging door that they could stand on and then they would climb on the roof. Yeah. Oops. I brought them up a well. <laughs> Super safe. Anyway, while she was standing on that door, Evan pulled the door out from under Bless and Evan. So she fell, right? Ooh. So uh, it might have been one or two days later, she came to Beth and said, oh, my wrist hurts. And uh, Beth said, oh, well, you know, have your dad look at it. So I looked at it and took it and bent it around. And she was just looking at me, you know, blinking her eyes and nothing. I said, well, okay, honey, you know, 
go on, you know, suck it up, I guess. Well, about three days later, she came back to Beth and said, oh, you know, my wrist still hurts. And so she took her into the doctor and it was fractured. She had a green stick fracture. Oh, what is what is green stick fracture mean? Uh, well, it's just a, there's a growth plate and it's, it's weakened and kids will sometimes hit and just slide that right on the growth plate there. Maybe that was an evidence <laughs> of me having her suck it up a little too much. Poor Michelle. Oh, bless her for just like smiling and looking at you whilst you're messing with her fracture. I was nominated for Parent of the Year from that. <laughs> that year in particular? Yeah, Amazing. Just another fine example. <laughs> Michelle wrote a letter in crayon. <laughs> Dear committee. Yeah, with a broken <laughs> with hand. A <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Do you tip? Oh, yeah. How much? Uh, 20%. That's standard. Why 20? Well, I, I think that's a pretty fair tip. Do you think the tipping system is fair? I would rather they get an income, but I certainly want them compensated for the work they do. I, it's hard work and they, you know, we need it. Yeah. Mm. I would much rather they get a living wage and benefits yeah. from that. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think they get cheated from that. It sets up a hierarchy that is never, ever able to be penetrated because right. you're always taking it a little bit because you know you're singing for your supper so, yeah you're yeah. right and did you do you ever not tip no i always tip i always tip coffee shop uber drivers lyft driver everywhere you tip yeah i tip uber wow. drivers I, of course i don't tip them 20 percent. sure yeah they, they in europe you tip less because they get paid well, and yeah. in some cases, it's an insult. When I lived in Spain, it was considered, unless you just, you could leave your change if you had a little bit of change in You're the right. dish. You're but right. if you left anything more than that, you'd be given it. I was handed back money. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And was told, like, we're good. Take we don't need it. stinking money yeah. and get Keep out Keep it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is a, I will say, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, there is a trade-off, though, with service. When we are in a position to have to sing for our supper, we'll sing. So we will do the extra thing. Things, whereas I did find in Europe, getting a bartender's attention was a bit more challenging. Yeah, and, you're absolutely right. It yeah, is, and uh, there is a so there is a bit of a trade off with service, but mm -hmm. I agree with you that the model needs to change. Do you ever remember when you were a waiter being stiffed, meaning not oh, tipped yeah. at all? Yeah. Yeah. What did you? Is it just because you just didn't care? Uh, no, I I didn't know exactly why, but uh, sure. Sometimes there's no reason. I mean, I'm such a nice guy. You're I just, just can't so likeable. I, How, you know. uh, I mean, you are a bit unhinged, though. Oh, as we've it could have happened. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, again, you probably screamed and flipped a table and created a scene. That's very I, much your vibe. A tantrum. I'm yeah, sure I'm I threw a tantrum. I'm certain you did too. <laughs> okay. Um, are you able, in a general sense, since we don't want to get too specific, are you able to describe what would be the the worst patient, not necessarily suggesting you actually saw this type of patient, but a top to bottom bad patient doctor experience. So we can teach the audience how not to be, although we have the most lovely audience on the planet. So none of them do this anyway, but. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of unpleasant experiences. Uh, for example, seeing a fraternity guy three, four times a year for venereal disease because he wouldn't wear a condom. Oh. Now, that is the kind of thing that you just, I mean, what do you do? I mean, obviously, you got to treat him and sure. counsel and guide him. But at some point, that's just not appealing. I, you just don't want anything to do with that. You know? the, other, the other people that are difficult, and you have to have in perspective, the people don't come to see me when they are tip-top. They are sick. They don't feel well. And to hold someone's behavior to a standard 
that you would accept when they're perfectly healthy is kind of unreasonable. Some of them are just really miserable. Mm. So you have to have that in mind. But the, the people that were the most difficult were the people that had expectations that you couldn't meet and, and then wouldn't, wouldn't back off, wouldn't understand. You would ex- try to explain to them why I, you know, whether, whether it's their breathing or their pain or whatever it is, just didn't meet what they had experienced, including seeing subspecialists. I never withheld that. Anybody that didn't get the result that they wanted, I had them get a second opinion with a specialist. I think that's really wise and, and necessary. But those are the people that would be so difficult. You can't meet their expectation, and yet they... They keep complaining and being upset and angry. Could you tell when you were being lied to? Not really. I mean, that's why you look at the chart a lot, because the usual thing is the is the druggies, you know, because they are really good at it. Yeah. They're really good at it. And and so even when I thought I knew, I, I really I could be easily fooled. Well, that disease um, is pretty cunning. I mean, yeah. you get good at it, I would imagine, to survive. With and then disease. a lot of people underestimate or underrepresent their illness. Underrepresent. Yeah. That's mm. interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that's the part that bothers you, okay? I mean, a lot of people complain more than you know you'd think they might whatever but sure. that happens but you know you don't really know how they feel but the the people that scared me was like for example when i started working on a computer mm-hmm. i never learned to type so i had to look at the computer and i couldn't look at them and then so they would come in for whatever question and you would go through your series of questions have you blacked out do you have chest pain blah 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 well a lot of people have had chest pain and if you're not looking at them, you don't notice hesitation when they say no, right? So if you're if you're if you're looking at them and they go no, you can tell there's something, Nuance. and you add further questions. But if you're looking here and they say no, you don't know that. So that's those are the people that uh, you'd be frightened about because you if you miss any warning signals, that might be all you get. You know? It's an interesting concept, though, to go and sit in front of a physician and minimize yeah. because you've made the appointment. You're there. So clearly you're concerned uh, in regards to something in theory, unless it's a general checkup. Yeah, but you have to think about the mental state of mm. the person that comes in. Sure. Now, the person that comes in, that did everything they can at home. They can't fix it. They're, they're desperate. Okay, they're going to express then that's why they're here. Sure. Now... The, the, you know, macho stud that gets off the golf course and stomps home and, is, and tells his wife that he had some chest pain. And she says, well, get your butt in the doctor. When he comes in to see me, he's only there because of his wife. Otherwise, he'd be there because of himself. Sure. So he doesn't think it's a big deal. He just wants to find out that he's perfectly healthy. He wants you to sign off so he can go home. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the guy that you can miss. That's the guy you may not get the warning that you're hoping to get. That's tough. Well, that's everyone has tough parts of their job. Yeah. <laughs> that one's just tricky. What's the hardest part of being a doctor? The hardest part? Yeah. Losing a patient. That's what I thought you'd say. Again, everybody, he's a terrible person, as you can tell, and he's very unhinged. Okay, well, that's all the sad stuff. So we're going to go on to the good stuff. We hope you saved room for dessert. What was the nicest thing a patient has done for you whilst you were working? 
or an example of something nice that happened if you don't, you know, don't want to call out someone specifically? Well, there's so many people that are incredibly nice. I mean, I've had people paint paintings for me, Aww. build birdhouses, <laughs> bake, you know, all lot of baked goods. Any, you know, any time that they would show appreciation, it was really, uh, really, really nice. I appreciate it. It's fine. Is it weird to send a doctor a thank you note? I don't think it's weird. Uh, I don't think it's weird. I got a lot of thank you notes. Did you? Uh, yeah, I think they're... Uh, so, um, yeah, it's perfectly fine if you... Uh, I... But the thing is, I would not have a thank you note for anything that the physician should be and definitely is expected to do. Okay. Okay? You wouldn't go in and have a physical and have someone draw blood and tell you about the results and write him a thank you note <laughs> for doing what he is supposed to do, okay? Okay. But if, if you know, if the physician uh, does something extra, you know, I had a lady come in for uh, a surgery, and uh, while she was there, I just said, well, I mean, did some other review, not related to the pre-op evaluation, some other review, well, if you had, you know, your breast exam, your pap smear, well, no, no, no. So we went ahead and did it. Well, she had a breast mass. But they cured her. She is still, Aww. yeah. And, and that so, was only because you did the series of questions. That, yeah. Well, that just because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of came up. And uh, that's not that, uh, that's unusual. A lot of docs do it a lot of times. But, you know, that time it just caught it. And so, so she was happy. Of yeah. course. So, yeah. I imagine yeah. you saved her life. So yeah. I would imagine she was a little excited. Well, the surgeon probably saved her life. Okay. And the cancer All right, Jeff. We'll keep going. <laughs> All right. Um, so those were nice things. What is, well, I asked about a tip. Um, can you think of the an example of, as a doctor, what you consider your ideal patient visit from top to bottom that you have to deliver negative news to? Maybe, maybe a patient who is finding out that they are diabetic. Everyone is unique. It's hard for me to say that this the, the perfect patient because that would piggy, you know, pigeonhole them into a response or whatever. Uh, obviously, the person that responds in a serious manner and uh, in a good attitude approaches the treatment that we'd like to pursue for them. You know, uh, whether it's diet for a diabetic or what. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, that's. I mean, but that's. A lot of people are that way. It's not exactly a perfect patient, so to speak. I mean, that's what you hope. You are know? you suggesting that the perfect patient doesn't exist because humans aren't perfect? Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, yeah, yeah. Terrible doctor. Okay, uh, what's the best lesson you personally have learned from being a physician? In terms of lesson, uh, lesson meaning I my education all the way through, that's aside. But what my patients have showed me is that no matter what, how humble a person has been brought to because of disease or age, they can find a way to be happy and to enjoy life. And that, and I, I say that from people that just have had, you know, desperate strokes or a horrible disease that you would say, oh, geez, I, I just, I wouldn't want to live that way. And yet they are able to find a way to do those things. And it is an astonishing thing to see that. So anyway, that's... 
That's but that's lovely. me. Uh, that's just, you know, what well, I... Well, I'm interviewing you. Yeah. So I want to know yeah, that's you. True. I want yeah. to know just you. Don't care about your friends. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And what's one piece of advice that you would give to patients who interact with doctors or I should, is it physicians? I don't know what's the right thing to say, but, or anyone in, in the medical profession, what's a piece of advice that you, that would be helpful for them to know? Well, I mean, uh, for themselves, they should make sure that if they get a relationship with the physician, they should be able to communicate what they need. And then if they don't get that, they need to take it further. Okay. So a lot of people, you know, talk about, oh, that doctor is a real pompous, you know what, but he's a good doctor. Well, I don't really know any pompous, you know, what's that are good doctors because they're not listening. They're all about themselves. And in my mind, you really have to communicate really well to be a good doctor. And if you, if you don't, if you have expectations of how that patient is supposed to behave and treat them you know, haughtily because of that, uh, that doesn't mean they're a good doctor. You know, maybe they can practice some good medicine, but I find that, I find that unappealing. So I, to distill the advice, it would be find a physician with whom you can communicate openly and who you feel is listening to you. And that you trust their decisions. Okay. You've got to be able to communicate and trust their decisions. And if you can't find that, move on. Did you ever have a patient say, you know, I hear what you're recommending, but my gut is telling me to do fill in the blank, and then they go do that other thing? Oh, yeah, all the time. And how do you handle that? Well, really, that's part of the job. You kind of brought it up earlier, but how many patients are perfect? Nobody. Now, who perfectly takes the prescriptions and behavioral advice that you give them? Nobody. Nobody's perfect. None of them do it. So you can't, you can't expect them to do that. You can simply urge them to do better and better and better or meet whatever goal you need for them and work with them and that will lead you to your conflicts when they're not reaching their goals and you have to redo things and and that's where a patient physician relationship gets trying if they are not responding to the recommendations is it because they reject your opinion or whatever and they need to go elsewhere or is it that no matter who takes care of them they're not going to do that because they think it's okay to go that route and a lot of people have a degree of each in them you know i'll bet you i'll bet you have certain diseases that you desperately do not want to die from yes and others well okay if i got to go that's okay Yes. But see, that would shape your behavior. Because if you go into a doctor's office and we're talking about a disease that, well, it's okay if I die from that. I don't want to. I don't think I will. Well, then you're not going to behave in a panic, strict, change your whole life way necessarily. Okay. On the other hand, if you go in and you a topic comes up that you are desperately afraid of, you're likely to change your whole life. I mean, just the power of that. Uh, But again, that's shaped by you and your experiences. And a physician has to know that and work with people. And if if you can't communicate that this disease is horrible, you can't let this happen to you, you got to get them to another doctor. I mean, Mm. someone has to help them. 
you know? And so. it's, I mean, it's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of that. I mean, and this is true, I guess, with all of our interactions with everyone for all time, but that our fear informs so much more of what we're willing to be taught. Oh, absolutely. Because if I'm afraid of X, then if you, if you tell me I have to walk backwards for three miles a day and I, and that, and then I will not get X guess who's walking backwards three yeah. times a day. If you're terrified enough, you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and have you had patients who were resistant and finally listened to your advice and survived as a result or not advice, your medical recommendations? Um, well, no one survives forever. <laughs> what? <laughs> but I mean, some are still alive <laughs> because they have, you know, followed the path. I, I uh, yeah, definitely. Too humble to even say it. Okay, well, how can people get in touch with you, Jeff? Are you are you comfortable sharing? And I can edit this part out, but about your music because I made reference to it in oh, the bio. But sure, are you comfortable? Okay, yeah. so uh, Doctor Jeff writes and performs music, and it's lovely, and it's available on YouTube. And do you are you putting it anywhere else, or is it just sort of um, out? In the I world? am uh, working with uh, an organization called Taxi. I don't know if I told you that, but. You told me, but you didn't tell the audience. But, so. Uh, so. Oh, well, it's it's an organization that uh, gets involved in trying to place... I am I have written some music, but I'm not a live performing artist. You know, I just... It's not my thing, so... But you like writing songs, yeah, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so I, I contacted them and have asked them to, to look... I was hoping to get some of my songs done by... A, you know, a musician or a band that would do them right, you know, instead of the way I do them. <laughs> Which and, is still uh, good. And, <laughs> but in, unfortunately, uh, I've been kind of universally rejected so far. But that's horseshit. We're going to figure it you out. Know, life is, you know, hope springs eternal. I'm sure I'm going to be the next, you know, superstar in no time at all. Don't be sarcastic. Okay, audience. For those of you that are performing artists or recording artists and have a vested interest in this area, you should look up how do they find, what is, is your YouTube page just Jeff Armitage or what is your... Yeah, it's Jeff Armitage and then the song. I'm, I'm so little known that you might have to have a song to, to get there because YouTube, you know, you get... And I'll be in the algorithm eight millionth in line, <laughs> and they may not get there. But yeah. can you spell your name for the audience, yeah. please, so they can find you? Yeah, J E F F, and then it's A R M I T A G E. Okay, so they can find your music there, and it is very good, and you sh- you should all go listen. And then, is there are you on social media that you want people to find you on, or are you good with just the YouTube? How, or do you want people to not be able to get in touch with you? What oh do you well, I. I'm on Facebook, but I never go to Facebook. I release my music on Facebook and then run away and hide because okay. I don't, you know. But I, I don't look at Facebook or anything. Okay, so but, so they should find your YouTube page. Yeah, the YouTube. You can leave a comment there if you okay. hate it or whatever. You no, can you, you can say the level of humility. <laughs> he is an MD. He went to school for sixty-two years to be able to do his job, and yet still the number of doctors that are so humble wouldn't let me call him Doctor Armitage very weird for me well, well I'm, I'm retired i'm a has-been oh god he also said what did you say you were just d- taking up space or something like that when you emailed me dead weight dead weight just ask beth just, she'll tell you i love beth and she deeply loves you <laughs> and there is just no way that she says that about you and hello to your lovely children who played ghost in the graveyard with me yeah. for most of my adolescence which yeah. was really fun yeah. also hi to the rogers whose yard we also used we were able to run across the street because 
We live in a small town. It's awesome. Well, folks, we are going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service from Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the show wherever you listen. It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind. It will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. And if you want to get in touch with us here directly at Service from Hell, send us your receipts at servicefromhellpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember, if you can't afford a tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> that <laughs> was fun. Outro. Which is also a symbol you're failing. So if I have to change batteries, you've failed twice. There's so, so many just, ways I, I can know, fail. I'm, really, I'm setting you up. I should be writing these down. That's true. Really? You really should. You'd be more focused. If you were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interested in helping support the growth of this podcast? Thank you so much. Please visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Kate Gaffney. That's patreon.com forward slash T-H-E-K-A-T-E-G-A-F-F-N-E-Y.